today on EdgeFX. How can I package environmental issues or natural history information in a way that's genuinely appealing to people? And, and my heroes as writers are people who do that really well. I'm, I'm not very good at it yet, but as a practitioner, I find it exciting that I'm reaching audiences that are so different than the people who read my work when I published only scholarly stuff. Geographer Daniel Krantz speaks with Michael Branch, professor of English at the University of Nevada, Reno, and author of a series of creative nonfiction books he calls a Nevada trilogy. Branch writes with humble humor and wit as he narrates his family's life off the grid on a rural Nevada homestead. Their conversation delves into the literary forms of environmental storytelling, the challenges of public-facing scholarship, and the limits of humor in a world where environmental harm affects the most vulnerable people first. Thanks so much, Mike, for, for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I love the work you guys are doing on edge effects. You know, maybe we should just dive in with a, a couple basics first. I'm, um, I'm impressed by the plethora of work that you've produced over the past few years. Um, you've written what you call a, a Nevada trilogy of three books uh, all about your time living in the high desert of the western Nevada Great Basin Desert, where it meets the Sierra Nevada foothills, and uh, the first being Raising Wild, which you published in 2016, followed by Rants from the Hill, 2017, and uh, How to Cuss in Western, which will be out later this year. Um, but you've also managed to produce a, a work of actual scholarship called The Best Read Naturalist about uh, the life of, of Ralph Waldo Emerson and writings. So I'm wondering kind of what drew you to the uh, this variety of projects and, and maybe we can just start with that question. Sure. Well, you know, don't be too impressed. Uh, things go in cycles, right? So in the life of a writer or a scholar, You'll have years and years where you're toiling in the salt mine and there's nothing to show for it. So it might look impressive when these things sort of happen in bunches. So I had four books in two years and man, that feels great. But but uh, you can also hear dark stories of the years leading up to it where I toiled away. And in fact, the Emerson book, uh, I started working on Emerson's natural history essays and sermons and uh, lectures uh, when I was an undergraduate. I mean, I've been interested in in Emerson forever and forever. So it's less a matter of having somehow produced that book quickly and more a matter of having been working on Emerson's manuscripts and his his natural science writing for decades. And it happened to sort of culminate, culminate in this book at this time. But as you know, the main emphasis of my work these days is place-based creative nonfiction about the high desert, often involving issues of family and often using humor. Um. So you've sort of just touched on uh, many of those themes, but I'm wondering if you can sort of draw out uh, in a little more specificity, what are the common themes that tie this trilogy together? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I'd say uh, I'll elaborate a little bit on the couple of points that I mentioned. Um, first, I started writing these essays initially because I wanted to capture the experience of raising kids in a really wild place. So we live at 6,000 feet in the Western Great Basin Desert, as you say, on the foothills of the Sierra. It's a really remote area with really extreme conditions, wildfire, blizzard, flash floods, etc. And uh, it, it's a neat place to live, but it's also a fascinating place to raise kids. And there's a lot of writing about sort of parenting in nature. So Richard Louvre style books that say we need to get our kids in contact with the natural world. And, and I admire that work, but often it's sort of uh, 
romantic and Wordsworthian, right? Like kids have this innocent view of the natural world and we're, we're purified by our time with them in, in nature. And I sort of found that as a father, I just felt like uh, every day was this humbling series of failures. And it occurred to me that, you know, parenting and living in the high desert were really similar. They both involve getting up every morning and trying your best. And they both involve going to bed every night, realizing you didn't get it done, right? That you were somehow humbled by those circumstances. And so I got interested in the possibility of talking about what it's like to parent and what it's like to be humbled by a landscape sort of together. Also, both of my kids are girls. And, you know, I'm really interested in the way the uh, American literary tradition tends to feature men in exile from adult responsibility, from jobs, families, communities. So, you know, one of the oldest and most compelling American narrative forms is the retreat narrative, right? We're just going to get out of Dodge and get out on the raft with Huck Finn or be out at the pond with Henry Thoreau or go up to Alaska with Chris McCandless. And so I started think a lot, thinking a lot about gender and wilderness too, that um, it's not only that I'm not a man alone in the wilderness, that I'm with my family, but also I'm the father of daughters. And I think there's an interesting complication to thinking about wilderness as a space for girls. So that's part of what I'm up to there as well. Much of your work um, seems to do this kind of trifecta of a braid among first-person narrative, which is a common trope in uh, creative nonfiction um, style writing, eco-criticism, which is where your training comes from, as well as landscape observation, natural history. And so I'm, I'm wondering why creative nonfiction to that being uh, your, your form now? Oh, that's a great question. I, I appreciate that. I spent most of my life as a scholar, as you point out, and I love doing research. I'm a total detail monster. I'm the kind of person who can go into an archive and not come out for a year. And, you know, that's that's a blissful uh, period for me. So I still love uh, scholarship and I love natural history. But I also feel like as scholar, I, I started to feel an increasing gap between the way I communicated with my students in the classroom and the way I communicated with my colleagues in the field through scholarly books and scholarly articles. And I'm not cynical about the value of scholarly work, but I don't know, the older I get and the more urgent issues seem to me, the more I feel driven to try to develop forms of communication that can connect the ideas I care about with a larger and more diverse audience. So I often think about you know, people who've never been to college or people who are ranchers or miners or farmers, uh, you know, how do I communicate about the issues that I care about in a way that's not going to seem alienating or condescending or, you know, overly abstract to them? And creative nonfiction is one of the most plastic forms in the world. I mean, it's so flexible. It allows for so many different kinds of approaches. And I just found that when I sort of did environmental storytelling, I was able to communicate with people better than I was when I, I used scholarship. So you, you probably notice in my work, I, I sneak in lots of scholarship, lots of natural history, but I package it differently. My goal is, you know, when you're done with an essay of mine, you've learned something, but you don't know it yet, that somehow I sort of tricked you into it. And uh, I don't mean that in a cynical way, but only to say, how, how can I package environmental issues or natural history information in a way that's genuinely appealing to people? And and my heroes as writers are people who do that really well. I'm, I'm not very good at it yet, but as a practitioner, I find it exciting that I'm reaching audiences 
that are so different than the people who read my work when I published only scholarly stuff. So just to follow up on that a little bit, I imagine that some of our audience um, listening to this podcast is comprised of young scholars, some graduate students, some of whom, like myself, are, are interested in integrating scholarly form and creative nonfiction. And I'm sort of wondering what advice you have for younger scholars who are beginning their careers in academia, which follows the usual tropes of academia, how, how they might approach balancing both creative work and scholarly work together, um, knowing just how long a process it takes to often uh, get to the point of doing that exclusively. Aha, you've asked the big question. I have two answers. The first is don't try it. It's perilous. It'll ruin your career. And the second is you absolutely need to do this. It's so much fun and it's imperative that we do it. Um, and, you know, I'm honest about, about that tension. I think that one of the things that's so risky about our performance in the academy is that the expectations of us are very narrow and the forms in which we're expected to work are very circumscribed. But that's not how environmental problems work or social problems. They're diverse, they're complex, and they require the insights of lots of different sensibilities and disciplines. You know, this is the core of, you know, the Center for History and Environment here in Madison is doing the work of bringing interdisciplinary humanities scholars together to help solve these problems. That's, that's how it should work. But most universities are still organized on an 1890s factory model. It's, it's boxes within boxes. It's very territorial. And I think one of the things that makes me despair most of how unreformed uh, American institutions of higher education uh, still are is that we have not realized yet the need to give more freedom to younger scholars to be able to experiment not only with different methodologies, but with different rhetorical forms, different epistemologies, different ways of knowing, different approaches to telling the story of what it is we really care about. So I, I'm a huge fan of the kind of interdisciplinary work that's being done here. That said, as a person who mentors a lot of graduate students, I have this competing set of responsibilities, which is I also need to try to work with my students to understand how the world really works and what the exigencies of the profession are. So I, I always find that question to be the best question you could ask and also the most painful one to answer because uh, pragmatically, I would say, stay narrow and deep, work within the conventions of your discipline. But that is the voice of a person trying to be a responsible mentor. But my real voice is, you should do some version of what I'm trying to do, which is experiment with different forms until you find a voice that you think can communicate the issues that matter most to wider audiences. I really hope that, you know, the kind of work that you're doing and that other people here are doing is going to help to push those boundaries out so that there's more freedom to try to, to, to do this work in other ways. So as an example of that kind of work that you do in a couple of very funny and insightful essays in, um, I'm thinking of the book Raising Wild, you sort of challenge this naive utopian vision of side-by-side -side coexistence with your uh, surrounding neighbors, be they uh, furry animals or, or snakes or lizards or what have you. And in a couple of memorable essays, you, you uh, go to war with pack rats in the walls of your house and chipmunks in your daughter's uh, first garden. And You've really sort of made them your own in important ways. 
but I also think about the kind of lineage of uh, these kinds of humorous encounters that c- come before you. I'm thinking like Michael Pollan's essay, Nature of Horror as a Garden, in his book, Second Nature. And so I'm wondering what influences you've had as a writer, um, intellectual, creative, literary, etc., over the course of your career. And these needn't be limited only to environmental um, influences, but just, you know, what who's shaped you in important ways? Yeah, I appreciate you pointing out those essays because, you know, I came up studying 19th century American literature and uh, I definitely bought the poster on the idea that we could all retreat into wilderness and have pastoral bliss. That's what I was all about, right? Um, And I think that even when we designed and built this passive solar home in the middle of nowhere in the high desert, I was still pretty much under the influence, I think, of that sort of Thoreauvian uh, sunlight that somehow we were going to escape the vices of over-civilization and prosper in this way that would be um, more in harmony with nature. And uh, maybe it would be different had I inhabited a different landscape. But the high desert wakes up every day in the morning with no goal in life other than to remind you of how small and powerless you are. I mean, it is unbelievable. It's invasions of Mormon crickets. It's 100-mile-an-hour winds. Uh, we've had a house fire from the wood stove. We had wildfire within 25 feet of our house last year. We've been snowed in for weeks. We've had our road cut away by flash floods. We've had rattlers on the playground. We've had mountain lions, uh, you know, in the yard. It's, that's my way of saying it's awesome. It's an amazing place to live. I completely love it. But there is no escaping the fact that if you have any ambition to experience pastoral bliss in this landscape, you can forget about it. And so for me, really, I think the the greatest epiphany of this life has been to challenge this fundamental kind of environmental romanticism that has always animated my my greatest fantasies. So I, you know, I've I've written somewhere that probably the most enduring theme in my work is what I call the durability of pastoral fantasy. In other words, every day the desert tells me that this is not Walden. And every day I somehow think it can be Walden. And it turns out that inhabiting a landscape that inspires this kind of humility by reminding you of constant failure does a lot more for your environmental education than the Sierra Club calendar landscape that you might inhabit. Every day the desert tells me that this isn't Walden, and every day I think it's going to be Walden. And it's and it's and that's where a lot of the comedy in the work comes from, is just the fact that our fantasies about the environment are so powerful that even evidence to the contrary doesn't always change our mind. So, you know, for me, I try to use in the books these flashpoints where my identity as an environmentalist, or at least the identity that I've created for myself, comes into direct conflict with the visceral reality of this place. So, for example, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's an essay in which I talk about uh, keeping my shotgun next to my writing desk so that I can stand up from the keyboard and um, shoot at at uh, rodents in the yard, and I basically blast away, and then I sit back down and finish the sentence. Well, you know, if you had told me 20 years ago that I'd be, you know, killing animals with guns, not only would I have said, no, I would never do that, but I would also have said something like, no, I'm going to go live in the country where it'll be blissful and I will cohabitate with non-human beings and it'll be wonderful. So lots of the stories in the book are about what happens when the bobcat eats the laying hens and what happens when the honeybees 
a hive up in an interior wall of the house. And what happens when the pack rats inhabit the crawl space beneath the house? And all of these are moments where any fantasy that I ever had of a bucolic pastoral retreat are exploded. So to me, I, you know, I moved out there because I wanted it to be Walden in the high desert. And it turns out that everything that's important about it is linked to the realization that it's not. You talk a lot about situating you yourself and your family within the um, biotic and human communities of the high desert, which is somewhat paradoxical given the fact that you have to drive down a washboard, a dirt road every time you need to go to the grocery store and your nearest neighbor is out of earshot. And so it, you play a lot with that sort of tension between isolation and community. And I, I'm wondering if you can kind of riff on, on those themes. Yeah, I would say that one of the tensions in the work is that tension between independence and interdependence, that there's this irony that I live in a rural area with a few other neighbors. And because of the extreme conditions, we really have to count on each other. But there's this wonderful irony that we all moved out there to get away from other people. So we have to figure out how to cooperate. And we're, we're all these isolados who have decided to retreat from uh, from community and and live this fantasy of being in isolation. I have an essay in the new book called Most Likely to Secede. And I start by talking about secessionist movements in the United States, but then I sort of fantasize, what if, what if my little 50-acre kingdom could function in a completely autonomous way, disconnected from everything that I find depressing and anxiety-producing about contemporary politics? Um, and I think it's that fantasy of retreat is so compelling to us and yet, as environmentalists, we also know that it's all about community. It's all about being able to work with other people. So I'm really interested in, and this is a tension that's deeper in American culture, but the way it manifests in my own life is that I want to live in complete isolation, but I need the help of my neighbors to do it. And so we're, we're in a little bit of a fix that way. We have to figure out how to interact with each other so as to preserve each other's ridiculous fantasies of independence and yet also be able to help each other when, when fire or blizzard arrive. I suspect that many of your readers find you relatable, uh, not because they too live in a uh, remote solar-powered home in the high desert of western Nevada, unless they're your neighbors, the very few of them, uh, but because they recognize the inevitable complications that arise from trying to make a domestic life when things don't go the way one expects. So at the risk of being uh, what E.B. White famously uh, said or famously admonished that humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process and the innards are discouraging to any but the purely scientific mind. So at the risk of being that purely scientific mind, I'm wondering if you can talk about why the domestic wild interface is particularly funny. Well, <clears throat> um, you know, humor is often generated at sites of failure, right? We, we laugh at things that go wrong. If Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton walk down the street, it's not funny. When they trip and fall, it is funny. And, you know, that's a sort of oversimplified metaphor for often how the dynamic of humor works. It's when things go wrong that we laugh or, or we cry or we're faced with a decision whether to laugh or cry. So I think to the degree my narrator is accessible to people, it's because we all get up every day and try our best and we all fail every day. And then we get up again and we try again. And I think 
that it's, for me at least as a reader, I don't enjoy reading the work of people whose starting move in building a relationship with me as a reader is to impress me with their expertise. I'm more interested in hearing stories from people that help me to understand their humanity, their ambition, their failures, and also their resilience. How, how do you get up and try again? And I think that humor has special value in helping people to build that kind of resilience because think of how often, for example, we find a way ultimately to laugh at something that's tragic or sad or frightening. And there's power in that form of laughter. It's not just pressure relief, which it also is. It's not just that laughter actually produces wonderful, positive physiological side effects, which it does. It's also that a laugh is it's a gesture of survival. It's proof that we're going to make it to the next day. So, you know, my narrator makes lots of mistakes and is honest about them, but also laughs about them. And I think when, when you laugh at yourself, you give readers permission to laugh with you so that they don't feel like they're laughing at you. You laughed at yourself first, so you've shown them that that's okay. And uh, I think, you know, we all want to believe that we can live in the world, make a lot of mistakes, laugh about it, and get up and try again tomorrow morning. So you alluded to this implicitly, but I, I just want to have a more explicit conversation about it, um, about how humor can be used to reach audiences more effectively uh, to promote a form of resistance or resilience in the face of seemingly grim environmental circumstances posed by climate change, the Anthropocene, if that can be distilled to any sort of set of um, environmental circumstances, etc. So I'm curious how and why humor is such a powerful antidote to those, those grim circumstances. Yeah, that's a great question. And when you use the term resistance and resilience, that's key because I do see humor as playing this sort of double function. In terms of resistance, humor can be a really powerful mode of striking back. So for example, I think we're entering a new age of political satire right now. And that's, I think, because many people feel like it's necessary that the circumstances that we're faced with politically, uh, that we have to fight back and that humor, if it's in the form of satire and sort of biting social and political critique, can be a real weapon. So in terms of resistance, I think that uh, being able to fight back with humor is extremely powerful. And we've seen satirists from the ancient world forward show that systems of power can in fact be attacked effectively using humor. So George Orwell famously said that every joke is a tiny revolution. I just love that idea that humor is fundamentally anti-authoritarian. It's used to strike at the foundations of what's perceived as unjust power. So there's that dimension, the resistance dimension. Then on the other side of it is the issue of resilience. And we've talked a little bit already about the way humor can function as a sort of gesture of survival or, or flexibility or accommodation. And I think environmentalists especially, let's face it, um, in the age of global climate change, biodiversity, loss, toxicity, pick your topic, it's a hard place to keep doing the work every day. And we all know environmental activists in particular who care with all their heart, work really hard and burn out. There, there's not really a sustainable trajectory for that kind of work. It's so discouraging and exhausting and dark. And so I think, you know, to, to pivot from resistance to resilience, that the environmental community especially, if we can engage more with humor, uh, it, it 
lets some of that pressure out. It lets us relax a little bit. Humor is a source of pleasure. And it also bonds us with other people. And then I would just add kind of a final PS on this is I think environmentalists in the popular culture, not among ourselves, but in the wider culture, environmentalists are often viewed as smug, angry, alarmist, lots of things that people really don't have an appetite for. And I think if we want to diffuse that idea that an environmentalist is uh, an overly serious person who is going to preach at you about your backsliding, uh, we're not going to get very far. Um, the Anthropocene is going to require of us new techniques to reach wider audiences in new ways. And, and I think fundamentally humor, it's not the only tool in that toolbox, but it's one that environmentalists have radically underutilized. It's interesting that you name the sort of double-edged sword of resistance and resilience. And I'm sort of wondering what the relationship between that and hope is, in part because, you know, I think about famous comedians, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, and in some ways their satire and their humor thrives on the sort of cynicism and disillusionment with establishment um, power. And so I'm wondering you know, it can be, it can easily lead to a form of cynicism and kind of expecting of the worst, um, and maybe devolve into at its worst, a form of nihilism, if not sort of used uh, consciously and intentionally. So I'm curious where, where does humor fit into inspiring or motivating some form of change rather than simply critiquing the status quo? Oh, that is a great question, especially with respect to political satire. So you've given a couple good examples. And I mentioned earlier that um, I went to college with Jon Stewart. Um, but all of these people, Seth Meyers, Andy Borowitz, you know, they're doing work right now in the culture that's really important. I think the first thing I would do is challenge the proposition that the kind of humor those people are engaged in is cynical. To me, a loss of hope is when you don't speak to the things you feel are unjust. And uh, when I see the work that political satirists are doing today, uh, it makes me very hopeful because, first of all, they're using a powerful rhetorical technique to attack unjust power, which, as I explained a minute ago, I think is a key role of, of humor. That's the sword part. Um, but also, they have wide audiences of people who are informed, relieved, who find pleasure in this. Uh, to be able to laugh at something is to take a certain amount of the fear out of that proposition. When you're genuinely terrified by something, you can't laugh at it. So to be able to laugh at it is to express a level of understanding that goes beyond a cynical critique. So I, I think I would kind of defend those guys. But your question is still really valid. What happens when humor just becomes uh, a bitter attack that doesn't point forward in any way. And and humor is very dangerous for lots of reasons, and that's one of them. So I, I think you're right about that. But I love this connection between humor and hope. I see both as doing the same kind of work in the sense that when I think of uh, humor, I don't think of I'm laughing because I'm out of other options, right? Nihilism. I think of I'm laughing because I still have resources available to fight back. I don't think of hope. To, to make the, the correlation here, I don't think of hope as uh, superficial, ill-informed optimism. I think of hope as a tremendous resource for change, not 
naive. A hope, hope can be tinged with a painful awareness of difficult circumstances. And I think humor can be too. So for me, you know, I don't see how you could survive without hope and humor. And I think it's so interesting that you asked about that because I think the dynamic of resistance is very similar in the two. They're both a sign of, I have not given up. I'm still here to fight the good fight. So just as a, another follow-up to that, it seems like the consequences of these environmental circumstances, they're of course born differently by different communities, um, by race, by class, by gender, by uh, positionality within national and global hierarchies. So my question is, if, as you say, humor is a powerful antidote to grief and rage, um, and you, you make the compelling case that it is, how might diverse, different forms of humor reflect uh, those different audiences and circumstances of environmental problems? Yeah, that is a more complicated and more difficult question for sure. And I, I'm so glad that you asked it because it's one that I struggle with a lot. And I don't have an easy answer to it. I, I take solace in the fact that uh, humor is one of the only things that anthropologists have found is absolutely universal to human cultures. Nobody has ever found a group of people uh, for whom a social system operates absent humor. So that's a pretty good starting point, right? You're on the same playing field as love, for example. Uh, it's something we do all have in common regardless of class, race, etc. On the other hand, humor can also be very uh, socially bound by context, and it also can be cruel. It can have targets that are singled out uh, unfairly. So uh, humor, to come back to the metaphor of the sword, it is a sword with, with two edges. I do like the way humor has functioned. I'll just give you two super quick examples. Uh, the way humor functioned in 19th century African-American communities, it was often something that was used to stay below the radar of people who had unjust control over you and yet simultaneously critique that power structure in a way that provided a special bond to the people who were in on the joke, so to speak. And during the, the uh, feminist movement of the 60s and 70s, humor was one of the main tools that was used by women to push back against patriarchy. And in anthropologists have shown that in many cultures around the globe, uh, humor by women is extremely circumscribed by social roles and rules, but that humor in groups of all women tend to be not only fantastically funny and creative and productive, but are specifically aimed at critiquing patriarchy. So, you know, I think you've asked a question that I, I don't know how to answer yet, but I do think about it a lot. And that is, humor can be so culturally specific that it's really not a panacea for some of these problems we're talking about. But again, it, it has also been a tool of people who are oppressed to uh, strike back at their oppressor. And in that sense, you know, we're sort of back to the sword and, and the hope. I'm wondering, going back a little bit to the narratives that you write that are simultaneously funny, profound, and poignant. And you, you write about them in such a, a wild place. Um, you pack so many serious scholarly ideas about natural history, about literary analysis, about landscape observation into what is essentially a very funny essay, but you do it in a way that makes the reader not even notice. It's, it's sort of flying under the radar. So 
I'm curious why you think humor is such an effective medium for transmitting those more serious ideas that engage much more than just the popular audience, but also the scholarly audience. I think a lot of it has emerged from my teaching. Um, you know, we're all scholars who are super nerds, who are so immersed in our topics, who love this stuff. But if we bring that level of specificity and detail to our classroom, we are going to lose our students immediately. So the pragmatics of pedagogy, you know, you're stuck in class. How are you going to keep people interested? You do it through story. You do it through humor. You do it through analogies between difficult concepts and the actual circumstances of your students' lives. You know, you learn this bag of tricks for how do I translate this stuff that I'm so interested in and make it interesting to people who don't think they're interested in it. And, you know, the most complimentary comment I ever got on a student course evaluation was, this guy loves this stuff so much that I felt like I should try to love it even though I didn't care about it. And so what I wanted to do was say, okay, I'm totally into Emerson, or I'm totally into the evolutionary biology of pronghorn antelope, or whatever it is that I'm fascinated by at the moment. And I want to share that with other people, but I know that if I share it at that level of detail with no narrative, no character, no humor, that, that people aren't going to be interested. So I would say that a lot of the techniques that I use in my writing, including humor, have emerged from just a desire to share things that I care about with people who don't think they're interested. And that's been the most fun is to see these books landing in, you know, like ladies book clubs at the country club and then at some seventh grade classroom and then with some hardcore activists and then with some people who say they haven't read a book in 10 years, but they loved this one. I, you know, I just really like that idea that if we can find a way to tell stories that is compelling to people, but also, and I'm not afraid to use the word, entertaining to them, uh, you know, we can broaden the conversation about the things we care about. You often use the first-person voice in your narratives, but of course, the written eye isn't necessarily the embodied eye. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk about the similarities and differences between Mike Branch on the page and Mike Branch in real life. <laughs> yeah. This happens all the time. You know, I sort of joke that one of the pleasures of being a writer is you get to construct a narrator who is a lot cooler than you are. So, you know, I'm not that funny as a person. I'm not that interesting as a person, but I can create a narrator who is, right? It's sort of an ideal self. So often people who've read my books and meet me are disappointed because I'm not as interesting as my narrator, which I take as a sign of success as a writer. Uh, they don't really want to meet me. They want to meet my narrator. My narrator is funnier than I am, more irreverent, parties harder, takes more risks, uh, does outrageous things. And, uh, you know, I have two kids and a day job and a mortgage. So my life is a little different than that. But I think the cultivation of the narrator uh, is one of the most important things in nonfiction. And this is not intuitive to people. We tend to think fiction is when writers make up stories and nonfiction is when writers tell their own story gospel. Um, and in fact, the, there are lots of literary techniques that go into creative nonfiction. But I think the most important one is to figure out what voice should tell your story. And I wanted a voice that was a little wilder than I am. Or maybe another way to think about it would be 
Uh, choose a side of your personality that's present sometimes, but not most of the time, and let that part of yourself tell the story. I don't mean to imply that my narrator is inauthentic or completely fabricated, but only that, you know, if you're going to be a humor writer, you need to have a particular voice to deliver this. And so I've I've created a narrator who is uh, as wild as the landscape. And that's sort of me on the days that I'm not worried about paying bills and making writing deadlines, right? If I could be unburdened of all the sort of pragmatic stuff we struggle with every day, I would be a lot more like my narrator. But but it's a great question because I think constructing a voice to tell your story is one of the most important things you can accomplish. And, and I'm still working on it. It has taken a long time. I wrote a monthly essay series for, I don't know, I wrote about 70 essays once a month. And I was probably halfway into that series before I could look at a draft of an essay and say, that's not consistent with my narrator's voice. That That is sticking out. It's a problem. I need to deal with it. And when I read stuff that I wrote earlier now, I'm, I'm sort of horrified for that reason is that it just took me so long to develop that that voice. Uh, so yeah, the, the, even in nonfiction, there's a difference between an author and a narrator and it needs to be strategic and carefully constructed. So since you're sort of just finishing this trilogy where that narrator, despite different books, is pretty consistent across all three of them, I'm sort of wondering in light of your upcoming work, whether you intend to sort of extend that narrator into into that work, and if so, how, or if not, what it's like to sort of be a narrator without a narrator. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great because, you know, the irony is you spend years and years and years trying to cultivate and perfect a literary voice that's consistent and effective. And then about the time you get it figured out, you think, oh, I don't want to be thought of as that guy all the time. You know, especially with humor writing, it's so easy to, to get pigeonholed. In fact, if you look at my first creative book, Raising Wild, in the hardcover edition, it has this beautiful photograph of a Great Basin landscape. I mean, it's stunning. And that's, that's exactly what my, my home desert looks like. When it came out in paperback, uh, it has a funny picture of four ground squirrels who look like they're hugging, right? So in other words... Uh, a decision got made by marketing and publicity people, oh, you're a humor writer. Okay, so if you're a humor writer, you need a book cover that tells people you're a humor writer. And hey, I like the I like that cover too. It's hilarious, you know. The, these ground squirrels are hugging, man. That's great. But I think, wow, well, people are going to look at a book with hugging ground squirrels and I, they're not going to take me seriously, which is a funny feeling for a humor writer to have, right? I want to be taken seriously, but I don't want to be taken seriously. So yeah, I struggle with that. I feel a little bit like an actor, you know, who always gets cast as the town drunk and gets really, really good at it. And they've always got work in Hollywood because they're the best town drunk ever, but then they can't do anything else. So in my next project, I, it will definitely be driven by humor, but the the narrative voice will be a little less hillbilly, and I'm looking forward to trying to kind of tweak the the tone on that a little bit. Can you talk a little bit, give us a, a few more uh, descriptors of what that looks like, even if you may not know them, definitely? You mean in terms of what I'm up to in the next project? Yeah. Yeah, so the next book is called Hunting for Jackalope, and um, you're all familiar with the, the jackalope, the little bunny that has the deer or antler horns on it. And uh, I have been fascinated by jackalopes my whole life. I've always wanted to write about this. So I've researched this for years and years, but 
haven't had the opportunity to do the writing, but I'll, I'll give you a, a little quick version of why this is so interesting to me. The story of how these gags, jackalope mounts, rabbits with, with uh, pronghorn or deer antlers came about is kind of a fun story, and I intend to tell that in the book. Then there's all this hilarious kitsch. I mean, the, the jackalope is one of the great sort of comic figures in the American West. There are songs, there are legends, there are crappy postcards, there's dice and shot glasses and everything else, right? I mean, the, the jackalope is ubiquitous in the West. And it's one of those sort of uh, cryptozoological figures that exists and it doesn't exist at the same time. So I'm really interested in the humor angle of the jackalope in the American West. But it turns out that horned rabbits really do exist. And other mammals of this kind exist too. And what happens is there's a keratinous growth that occurs on mammals. And it's caused by a virus. And that, so that virus causes these animals, in effect, to grow these sort of grotesque horns. And going all the way back to the late medieval and early Renaissance period, there's beautiful, beautiful illustrated natural histories that show these horned rabbits, which were considered to be a distinct species. People didn't understand that it was regular species affected by a virus. So the first part of this book is about the humor of the jackalope in the American West. The second part is about actual horned rabbits and the uh, biology of, of how this uh, occurs. But what's really special about the project that I'm excited about is the third part of the book, and that is that the Shope papillomavirus, which is what causes these growths on, on rabbits, was discovered in the 1930s. It wasn't genetically sequenced until the 1980s. And to make a long and very interesting story short, it ultimately uh, was used, this virus was used to show the first connection between uh, viruses and cancer. And so the most effective anti-cancer therapy uh, in the world these days is HPV vaccine. And HPV vaccine comes directly from what we learn by studying horned rabbits, in effect, jackalopes, right? And so, you know, this part of the book is tongue-in-cheek called Jackalopes Prevent Cancer. Uh, but HPV can prevent, uh, the vaccine prevents about 90% of cervical cancers, which kill a half million women a year. And yet there are still lots of people out there who are not administering the HPV vaccine to their kids for lots of reasons that are really, really interesting. And I, I won't go into it here. So I find this book really exciting and challenging because it takes my interest in natural science, my interest in humor, and ultimately applies it to a social and medical health problem uh, in a way that I hope will kind of raise people's consciousness. So, you know, when my uh, editor asked what my goals were for the book, I said, I have two goals in this order. I want to make people laugh and I want to save women's lives. And, you know, it's a, it's a grandiose and overly simplified way to put it, but I just love the idea that I could use something as whimsical and funny as a jackalope as an entree into a conversation as serious and important as uh, vaccinating our children against cancer. Uh, the Jackalope book is uh, a great example of sort of pushing boundaries in important ways and uh, mixing those dual motivations to be funny and also to tackle some pressing problems. And I'm sort of wondering what you're seeing in the field of eco-criticism, creative nonfiction, environmental humanities writ large that are uh, doing interesting, novel, important things, pushing boundaries in interesting ways. I think more and more we're seeing people who 
want to communicate about environmental issues deploying the kinds of tools that SAS have used since Montaigne. So I, I'm really excited by uh, the work of people, whether it's in food studies, uh, whether it's in more anthropological fields, popular science writing, who are finding ways to use the techniques of the essay, the techniques of personal narrative, to share things that are really uh, important but not easily accessible with wider audiences. Um, and there, you know, there are a million examples from the writers whose work I admire, but the people who I've been most influenced by tend to be you know, people like David Qualman, Bob Pyle, Stephen Jay Gould, people, Michael Pollan, people who are doing science writing in a way that is entertaining, engaging, funny, uses personal narrative. And yet uh, I'm just learning an immense amount from these writers, often about topics that I did not think I cared about. And so I think that's that's the trick. You know, when you ask me what I like out there, I like anybody who figured out the way, a way to use the fact that our species is hardwired for narrative to communicate information to people who might not otherwise want to listen. And there are more and more great examples of this uh, out there, not only among writers, but you know, filmmakers and artists and musicians as well. So I think we have to keep trying to figure out how to build bridges across that gap between uh, what we know and how we can explain it to help people feel it, care about it, enjoy it. Does part of you feel like getting all these questions about humor and where you're sort of really theorizing humor, does part of you just feel like, hey, man, like, I just want to be funny, you know, like, this is part of my, like, I'm a scholar, so I sort of have to be able to defend myself when I, when people come at me with these questions, but like, I just want to do the writing that I want to do. And this is like my way of justifying it in a like more serious way. Oh, that's, you know, now that's really interesting. And it does speak to my background as an academic, right? As an academic, you can't do anything without being prepared to analyze it. And yet humor, you know, the, the point of something that's funny is precisely that it goes under or over or around analysis. All the usual systems of, of exegesis don't apply. That's what we love about humor is it explodes those systems of analysis. Even a simple joke, that punchline, what we love about it is the surprise, the inversion, the incongruity, the way it explodes what we think is going to happen. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm teaching this graduate seminar on humor studies now, and I have my students reading like thousands of pages of really heady humor theory by linguists and cognitive psychologists and evolutionary biologists and anthropologists. And, you know, I think every week we go out of there going, this is getting less funny by the week, you know, this couldn't be worse. Um, so yeah, it is very ironic that, you know, humor is designed to circumvent our normal systems of analysis. And then when you get asked to articulate how it works. It, well, it's just like the E.B. White quote that right. you offered. It's a form of dissection that sort of leaves the subject dead. So yeah, I do feel that way sometimes. And the other, the other thing I feel that I have the hardest time articulating without just sounding like a petulant baby is, you know, if people don't laugh at my humor work, of course, it's like, hey, come on, you know, I'm, I'm hilarious. You should laugh. But then when they laugh, I, I want to say, I'm really serious, you know, I can make you cry too, you know. I have this other stuff. Have you seen my other stuff? So one of the things that I that I use humor for specifically is not comic relief, but rather as a way to communicate about really serious stuff. So, you know, like I have a humorous essay about my dog dying. You know, nothing 
is more painful to, to many of us than, you know, than the loss of, of a pet. And I couldn't write about it for years because it was too emotionally intense. So the only way I could come into that topic ultimately was as a humor piece. But in the end, I hope that I delved into all of the serious emotions that came from that experience. And so in that sense, it isn't comic relief and humor isn't a thing you sprinkle on at the last minute. Uh, it was a way to deal with something that I was grieving over. So I do feel sometimes like the appreciation of the humor work doesn't fully take into account that the humor is a vehicle for things that are more important. So yeah, I do feel that way. And I think uh, in my experience, reading things that made me laugh, I leave not thinking, oh, like, you know, this writer is inherently funny, but it's more like there's a sort of amplitude there that they're not, that other writers aren't really using. I mean, I think about David Gessner, his book on Stegner and Abbey had humorous parts to it, but it wasn't a book of humorous environmental writing necessarily, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Everybody wants to feel that they have range and that they're appreciated for that range. But I like your concept of amplitude that, you know, I guess my take ultimately on humor work is not that everybody should do it or it's the only way forward, but only that it seems to me to be a mistake to overlook something that's as universal as the pleasure of laughter when we're trying to communicate. But but yeah, I think you're right. It's a diversity of approaches both within the work of a particular writer and then, you know, on a larger scale um, that especially with environmental issues, uh, we need every tool in the toolbox and we need to invent more as fast as we can. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mike. It was, a, it was a pleasure to have you here today. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate the work you guys are doing here. That was Daniel Grant, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Geography at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaking with Michael Branch, professor of English at the University of Nevada, Reno, where he teaches American literature, creative nonfiction, environmental studies, and film studies. Branch is the author of three recent books, including How to Cuss in Western, Rants from the Hill, and Raising Wild. You can learn more about his work at michaelbranchwriter.com. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Charles Carlin and me, Carly Griffith. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back soon with a conversation with Dylan Miner a Métis artist, activist, and scholar. Miner is the Director of American Indian and Indigenous Studies and Associate Professor in the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities at Michigan State University. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps connect us to new listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, 
keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.